Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 12-1-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the, the meeting we have this evening. Thank you for life, health, and strength, and we pray as we open your word that we will be uh, single-minded as we focus our attention on the words of Scripture and allow the spirit of truth to minister to our hearts. So, Father, we pray for those who are sick among us. Father, you know those who are on our hearts right now. In fact, we have Fred who will be undergoing surgery uh, very soon. We pray for not only the, uh, the event, but the doctors, everything surrounding the event, that uh, he may be restored to full health. And Father, we pray for, for all those who uh, are associated with us and on our hearts this, this evening that may be sick or in pain or, or need some comfort. All this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So, Amen. So, Amen. so we have uh, been studying in the book of Romans, and we, we landed in verse 3 last week, and we did not finish. So we will take some time to finish uh, 3 today. We'll get to that later. Although, uh, this is Romans 10.3, that is. So, before we do, we do have some thoughts. Some There's an opportunity for some thoughts around whatever is on your mind. So, we will open up the floor uh, right now. Yeah, that, that's, uh, thanks for that question. Um, that's, uh, when we think about it, I would say uh, the first thing that jumps out at me is you talked about Israel uh, as opposed, uh, when we think about Israel, we think about Old Testament. So when Christ came, there was a dividing line in Israel. And uh, those who were believers in Christ uh, were separate from those who were not. And for the most part, uh, the leadership and 
the majority of those in Israel stayed uh, firm on their rejection of Christ. So even though Christ came and did the work necessary to fulfill uh, all that had been written about in, in the Old Testament, what we find is they did not experience the new covenant. So then God turned to the church. So even though uh, Christ had died for all the sins of the whole world, he, you know, as far as Old Testament economy in terms of the ceremonial law, all of that has been done away with. And, but Israel, the nation Israel, will not be a nation again until after the rapture. So while people who are Jews today could believe in Christ, they become part of the church. But um, it is not until the tribulation that national Israel comes on the stage again. But this national Israel is different, uh, much different from what went on previously with Israel because they were primarily unbelieving. And now they will be believing. So they are, they now are under new covenant principles as a nation as well. So what does that mean for them? The writer of Hebrews talks a lot about it, especially what we read recently in Hebrews chapter 10, where uh, sacrifice um, of bulls and goats are not sufficient to take away sins. and But now, uh, God has given us something greater, and that is the solution to the sin problem, and that is Christ. So, all this, we call them the ceremonial laws, but the ceremonial laws are not just, well, we're done away with because now we have Christ. And that, and that is a point to make. But they speak of aspects of uh, sin and unrighteousness and uh, all the things that we, we talk about, redemption. and You know, the ceremonial law taught that. The fact that Christ is here now, the Holy Spirit takes that, uh, and now he witnesses to everyone. And about sin, about righteousness, about judgment, he witnesses to the whole world since Christ did die. So now we're under these new covenant principles uh, Israel will be under the new covenant to Israel. It's interesting because you don't find, you find the new covenant of Israel to, to uh, the new covenant to Israel, you find that in the Old Testament. You don't find the new covenant to the church because there is no, per se, new covenant to the church. We're just under, once that happened, it happened for the whole world. It's not just related to Israel. Israel just will not experience it until the tribulation and then the millennium. So what happens? Now, Israel in the tribulation is not a good example of it all because for the most part, they're on their heels. They're running. They are hiding. They are persecuted. Even though, yes, they are a nation, they stand as a nation before God. Now, they're, they're a witness to the world. But they will, will not be able to practice everything that a nation uh, is able to practice because it, it is a, a time of trouble. Since this trouble is spoken of in Scripture as monumental. So 
once Israel uh, does settle down in the millennium, they will be a nation under God. And this nation will have rules and principles that they will be governed by. And what, what, what rules and principles are there for this nation? Some of those we don't know. We can't say exactly, but the structure of their governance will be the Mosaic Law. Uh, God will continue. He talks about, I will take my laws and I will write them in their hearts and in their minds so that they will have consciousness and understanding of what is required of them. And that, that's an inside witness. But what is it a witness to? It's not like for us. So we have inside witness to the deep things of God, to God's eternal purpose and what is our role and so forth. God gives us what he needs, what we need by means of the spirit of truth. But in the, in the millennium, they have what they need in order to function in that environment. And like I say, this is a lot of unknown here because we could talk a lot about it, but really, for us to speak about it like we are so knowledgeable, we don't have so many scriptures that we are familiar with what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, we, we have the broad outline, but we there's a lot of detail that we don't know. So I don't want to speak about it as though I'm so knowledgeable about it, but the Bible doesn't. So we, we defer to God to at that particular time. We know he's going to govern that nation by uh, the structure. Uh, and, and remember, the law was given to Israel, not to the whole world. Why? Because God wanted Israel to be his priest nation. Uh, there were other purposes that Israel had as well, but that part uh, to represent him, to be his peculiar people, a peculiar nation, right? Specifically, uh, that was Israel's entire purpose. So they will be that, and they will be distinguished from the world, from the nations in general. But I'm, I'm going to pause to see if this is where you're going or what your thoughts were. Yeah, I think that's um, pretty much where my thoughts were going in that. Um, so I, I think that helps me out a little bit. And I do understand what you mean by, you know, there's going to be, they're going to be under monumental persecution um, during the tribulation. And um, from what I've looked at before this call, it looks like... Um, Several chapters of Revelation, such as seven, eight, and nine, are speaking about those times mm -hmm. um, of great persecution. And, in, and uh, here's another question for you: In Revelation ten, there is the angel and the little scroll, um, a mighty angel coming down from heaven in verse one, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, his legs like pillar of fire. And um, skip down to verse 7. So Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Is that a reference to the church and the millennium? No, I don't think so. I think it is about what was in the context here. So... Um, 
this is about the scroll, right? Um, mm -hmm. What you just read. Uh, he holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He, plant, he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout, roar of lion, and so forth. And when the seven thunders spoke, it was... I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up the seven thunders and uh, have said, and do not write them down. And the angel I had seen standing on the, the land and raised one right hand, his right hand to the heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and so forth. But that is what he's, what he's referring to. Right, the, when he says the mystery. Other words that were sealed that he didn't write them down. Right, right. Mm -hmm. okay. So, but, but what this ultimately is, we should know, is revelation. Right, that's what the scroll and uh, and then when you look at um, the analogies about so angel. Look at verse nine. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, "Take it and eat it." I will, it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So a lot, <laughs> the language here, imagine, you think that's what really happens, or is that some metaphor for something else? We can pretty much say that's a metaphor for something else. But look, once he gets this, right, it, and it did exactly, he says, I took it and, from, and I ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour, I was told. Now, here, here's the point of it all. I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So here you have Israel in the midst of the tribulation. Hot, things are hot and heavy, and they have to go out and speak publicly to the world. So on the one hand, it's good news. But on the other hand, the way it will be received will be bad. So you'll eat it, it's good, but ultimately it's going to cause some bad things to happen. So we, we, I remember we studied this. And uh, this is not something new. You find this imagery in the Old Testament as well. So we have it here. Same thing, same type of thing. And one thing to note about Revelation, what you should know, is just like the mystery information, how it's revealed to us, we read that information and what it should do is resonate with you. I hope when you read it, you're not reading the Old Testament and like, yeah, that happened. Yeah, now now, let me, t let me see how I can live my life according to what Daniel did or what David did or, or Hezekiah or someone. That's even though you read those things, that should not resonate with you like the New Testament epistles. And those things that are written there are for us directly. I mean, it tells us everything we need to know about life, the life that we have on the ground right now. But what what is happening in Revelation is about what these Israelites will need as they are taking steps in such a dangerous world. Literally, they need this information. Just like we're reading the epistles and deriving from them how to walk in wisdom, so it is with 
those in the book of Revelation know. It is literally on the ground instructions for them. We read it and say, oh yeah, I don't know how that could happen. I don't understand how that would be. <laughs> when they read it, at the time that they're reading it and things are going on, it will make perfect sense to them. They will see what the will of God is for them directly. So while we, when we studied Revelation, we kind of saw that. Uh, or we even see some of that in the church age, which we call, I, I've referred to it as battlefield language. Like it tells us to be ready, you know, you know, our struggle is not with flesh and blood. We got to be, we got to fight, you know, all these things. And it talk, talks about the struggles that we're having on earth right now. But in Revelation, this is on the battlefield instructions. And these are the people who will be on the battlefield at the, the climax here of the suffering of this world. That is the tribulation. So just wanted to point so that this, out. This battle here is, can be, sounds like it's going to be a lot worse than what the Hebrews was suffering in, in the letter to the Hebrews. Yes. The Hebrews were even thinking about curtailing back. That's right. And going back to the old way, but this is going to be much more trying of them. Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about these beasts coming up, a beast is a political power. It's not just some animal that is mute, mute, a mutant animal with seven heads and ten horns and so forth and so on. It is referring to this, war, this power that is not only just uh, mili militarily, but politically speaking, and it garners the attention of everybody in the world. So this beast, uh, when it's, and then I'm looking at Revelation 13, it says, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It's three and a half years. So what, what we have, that's 13.5. So the beast, right, it's, it, it, and then if you look at the four, you see at the last it says, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Now, you, you would say against him, right? But really it's not a him, it's this power. Now, there may be somebody at the head of it. It is a Satan's man. So, so Christ sent, uh, uh, God the Father sent the Son, Christ. And Christ was very successful in this world. In fact, he took, he conquered angels. And, but, but the beast is Satan's man on the ground. He literally is somebody that Satan has placed in power over the world. So just think about it. Satan has power in the world already. He has influence. But now he has taken uh, his influence directly to the ground. And now he's influencing, compelling all to not only that he has political power, but he wants worship. He wants people to see him as God. Some of the uh, ancient uh, Roman emperors did have that uh, aspect to them where they not only did they think that they were ruler, 
but they thought, hey, I'm God. I need you to worship me. Your religion should be worshiping me. That's what you should do. And uh, you can't wage war against it because he has all the military might of all the nations. So if he has the, the all the nations, the power of all the nations, that means he has all the military might of all the nations. And um, so then... Look at verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So when we look at that verse 8, we already talked about the book of life are those who are the professed people of God on the earth, doing battle, doing, showing God's uh, witness in the world. And then he goes on and talks about, he, <clears throat> you know, here's, here's the patience endurance of the saints. And then a second beast coming out of the earth, horns like a lamb. And, um, and it, it did all the great signs causing fire to come down from the earth and in the full, full view of people. So they got deceptive wonders. Uh, and then the old, whole point of all of this is verse 15, 16. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So when we look at that, we realize that they, Satan is not only saying, that's it, we're going to smoke them out now like they did in the inquisitions when uh, people ran into these caves. The caves were so intricate that they could not figure out how to, which way they went in the caves so they would be able to get away. So what they did was they started fires so that they would smoke. With smoke they would kill them in the caves. So in, in this here is similar to that. Satan is saying, you know what? We'll smoke them out. You you, you won't be able to buy or sell. And this is why we read in Matthew 25 where it talks about you, you did not visit me in prison when I was hungry. You did not give me any food when I... See, because we're talking about people in this conflict that is expressed here in Revelation 13 where they, you know, Satan begins to turn the screws to make it tighter. Okay, so you want to profess Christ? I'm God. And you're going to stand for him? When I'm God, no way. Satan, the beast, they get busy and they fight and it's bloody. It's a terrible time. You would not want to live on the earth at this particular time. But thank God we have been saved from wrath. I will pause. Yeah, so you, you you know I gotta go back and read some revelation or listen to some old revelation tapes now. <laughs> I will be doing that. <laughs> you got me excited a little bit. All right, so if there are no other thoughts, we got. How are you doing? Hey, Dave, how are you? Welcome. And I was learning that Satan, he was he, he was a he, he was a cherub. He was not one of the the uh, top angels though, but he was a cherub. Which he had four four 
four, four wings, though. But the one that spoke in Isaiah, they had six wings. I think it was like maybe six or seven of them. But he was a, he, he was just a regular cherub, though. He, he had four, four wings. And the, and the person that he got in charge with him, I think his name was Abaddon. Um, are you talking about the, the, one of the his his angels that came up out of the abyss? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. But that's not what we're referring to in Revelation 13, though. We're talking about the beast and the false okay. prophet. But the one in Revelation chapter seven, right? Yeah, I, I, seven. What? Um, well, I mean, I mean. Well, I, I heard the white talk about before, and he was in, I think it was a seven? Ten, he was in ten. Okay, ten, okay, right, okay, right, right. Yeah. So, but, yeah, I, I hear you to your point, yeah. I, yeah, it's and I, was, I was also learning that um, they had like a, uh, like an, in, 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 uh, I, I can't pronounce it that way, it's called an epitorical, it's called an epitorical prayer. We, we shouldn't pray that, though, because we have Christ who's in heaven. He's a leader for us. But they even prayed a lot about the, uh, about the, about the emperor prayer, which caused harm, which, which, he, which, which he, um, he prayed for harm to be caused for the children that, and his army and the people that were against him. What kind of prayer was it? I, I am not familiar with that, Dave. It's called it's called an it's called an intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer? No, no, it's not intercessory. It's an intercessory. Maybe I'm, I'm not pronouncing it right. Somebody else um, help Dave out with that. I'm not. Do you know how to spell it? So what we'll, we'll have to put that we have to we have to park okay, that one because I, since we don't know exactly what it is and where do you know what the scripture is that okay. refers to it or I can I, I can come back with you maybe on study when I get home I could you know I wrote, wrote it down okay oh, okay that'd be good yeah because I, I don't know no, unfortunately right. Dave I, I'm not sure exactly where you where where that is okay it's no uh, problem it's no problem I just know that um. I think one of the angels that was Satan's right hand man was called a Abaddon, which mm. came out, 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 out of the abyss to wage war. Yeah, I, I'm a, I'm familiar with with that, but I'm not I'm not sure what you meant okay. by the other about uh, the prayer. Okay, yeah. I got you. It's no problem. Yeah, but we'll come back to it, man. God willing, yep. we'll have some time, and I'm sure you're going to get your. Uh, what, what scripture it is and everything, and we, we, we'll talk about it. I, okay, I just know that I was I was learning, from, I think, from theme about David was praying a lot of prayers, and like all the people of of, of, of Israel was praying, that that caused harm against those who wanted to hurt them. But that's, that's one prayer that we wish, that we shouldn't use, though. Well, I appreciate your, we your, your bringing it forward, but we, we I certainly... That. 
won't be able to won't be able to comment on it. Yeah, I'm intercessory. I already I already said intercessory, but we're we're gonna we're gonna park that for now, and we're gonna we're gonna head in. Okay, no problem. We'll head into Romans, but as you get your the scriptures and uh, everything together, I'd be happy to take a look at it with you. I, I want to I see what you're seeing. Yeah. No problem. But at this no point, problem. I'm not able to, to see it, but but we'll get it, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. So we're going to head into Romans then. And we got we got some things we wanted to finish up from last week, 1124. So you should have notes. And we're going to go right to the notes and dig in. Let's see, Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. Now, we only, we, we only got a little bit of ways in here, but we'll, we'll pick up to where we left off. So Romans 10, 3 says, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to, the right, to God's righteousness. So many resent the, the, that salvation is by grace and is free to everyone who believes. The reasons for this opposition may not be the same for one, from one to another. However, the result is the same. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the God's wrath remains on them. That's John 3.36. Grace is not easily understood by someone working hard to be saved. God knows our hearts and can tell us exactly where we are rejecting his righteousness and depending on our own. So it is an important factor here. And if I were to, from this thought, go to Romans chapter 1, this is something that is not known so much in the rest of the Bible as it is in Paul's writings. Even though it is mentioned and it isn't a factor, Paul really brings it out so that we can see it. And what is it? It's the righteousness of God. So Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For, now this is, here it is, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So this part, Romans 1.17, Paul is saying in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed or manifested. Now, for us, here, that's plain. We, we talk about the righteousness of God and justification a lot. And we have been talking about it a lot more because we're in the book of Romans. We've been dealing with this. But it, Paul is saying, let me, let me show you something about the gospel that may not be on the surface of things. And that is the righteousness. And that's why we've been dealing with it. And especially because the Jews have uh, their own way of how they think that they're going to be made righteous. And God is squarely dealing with that, making sure they understand it. But it is not just for the Jews because they have the law and, and all of that. It's for Gentiles too. So what Gentiles have done is they have made 
a law out of morality and taking some things from the Old Testament and patching it all together and saying, this is what God wants you to do. If you don't do it, most likely you're not saved. They'll say things like that in order to corral people, police people, uh, do what we would consider as God the Holy Spirit's job, is to convict people and help them move forward in the spiritual life. They will require those things for salvation. It is sad. It is a sad picture because you would think people would have learned from Israel's failures. Instead, they have hoisted Israel up on their shoulders as though Israel were uh, the greatest thing. And it is not. Not at all. They failed miserably. Do not repeat their failure. What is their most fatal flaw here? It is the fact that they refuse to accept grace as the basis for their acceptance to God. They said, no, we got the law. We're going to keep the law. That's what's important to us. They refused to allow grace to be the foundation of their faith. So that's what we want to kind of explore We've gone through this. Uh, they did not know the righteousness that comes from God. And so what did they do? They tried They made made their own up. What did what do Gentiles do? The same thing. They have now, of course, the things that are in the Mosaic law that they don't like. They just leave right there. It's all that was for the Jews. We don't have to do that today. But the Sabbath was is a good example of all of this, because the Sabbath is in the Old Testament. That's where we find it. And it talks about how, you know, how to keep the Sabbath in, in the Old Testament, exactly what should be done and should not be done. And if a person violates the law, there are consequences that they will receive as a result of them uh, violating that particular command of God. Well, today they just said, well, this... Yeah, we like the Sabbath idea. We're just going to carry it forward in the church, and um, all you have to all you have to do is just do it. If you don't do it, well, I'm sure God won't be pleased with you, but He won't require death as a consequence for that. So they, they we'll leave that in the Old Testament. We don't need that. We only want the 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 idea of the Sabbath. So they pick whatever they want, whether it's tithing, Sabbath observance. Uh, dietary restrictions, whatever it is, they pick and choose from the Old Testament. They, as I said, they don't take any of the consequences. They leave those in, right there in the Old Testament. They just want to to bring forward what they consider a morality that is in the church. And just think about it: Israel was a nation, and all of the rules of conduct and uh, of law were about a nation's, not just well, individuals. And here they're trying to apply it to the church. The church is not a nation. The church has people in every nation. There's no particular nation that you should belong to in the church. God, wherever God puts you, well, then that's fine. If you're in Russia, if you're in China, if you're in the United States, if you're in Canada, it's okay. You don't have to migrate somewhere and do a pilgrimage once a year. None of that is required if you're in the church. None of those rules and requirements that were, were specific to Israel. So 
even though so the Jews thought they were special in in that right that they uh, they were different from other nations because of their culture of the law however God's standard of righteousness will not change and it cannot change so if you're going to be saved then you must adhere to God's standards in order to be saved and the law was never meant for Israel to be saved that was not why God gave the law plenty of people were saved before Israel even came into into existence but all we got to do is think about Abraham how about Abel righteous Abel he was saved even before the law existed so it's not a salvation is not about the law and or keeping the commands of God never was and man and their sinful state cannot do that <clears throat> so we went through we went through quite a few verses here uh, in point number one I think we got all the way down to point C but I'm going to start at point B just to pick up where we left off why did they not know the right not righteousness of God because that's that's the phrase since they did not know the righteousness of God why did they not know it because they looked past the ceremonial substitutional sacrifices which taught that God required a propitious substitute, Hebrews 10, 1 through 7, which we read last week. And it, it's very clear that God did not say, okay, just do better. He didn't say repent and then feel sorry, and then if, as long as you're feeling sorry and repentant, I'll be satisfied with that. <clears throat> not so. God was not satisfied. An animal had to die. And that is clear, and that's rough to say an animal has to die because of sin. So no matter how you slice it, God was saying you need a substitute. You are not sufficient. You are the one who, are, who needs a substitute. Israel ignored that, even though it spoke very loudly to everybody to me, right, those who allow the Holy Spirit to teach them, speaks very loudly. And yet Israel ignored it and said, well, we got the law. So, so point C, the fact that there was always a substitutional sacrifice means that of themselves, they were not worthy. That's Romans 6.23. That's God's plan. He talks about Adam uh, and the wages of sin. Then he talks about Christ and the gift of eternal life. Those are the two options. Where are you? Are you an Adam? Okay, so the wages of sin for Adam's race is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there you have it. That's the difference. That's the dividing line. So this. Is, so I'm in point number one, and now I'm looking at D. Our knowledge of the bad news in Romans 3 is not a new thought. Well, we, we've read those scriptures, and I can't tell you how many times I've quoted them. <laughs> I, wish, I wish somebody would have listened, could listen to the tapes uh, like they do for these political speeches. And they say, well, he said something about the United States 150 times. He really is. That is important to him. Well, I wish they could look at all the things I've said over all these years and said, how many times have I mentioned Romans 3? You know, there is none who do good, no, not even one. You know, those scriptures. 
Well, what we should know is those scriptures are not a new thought. Scriptures come from the Old Testament. I know everybody already knows this. But I think it is fitting that we go and look at them in the Old Testament because that's what they had as well. Psalm 14, we're going to turn right to it. Psalm 14, 1 through 3 says, um, it says, um, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. It goes on, but I just want to stop right there. Does that sound familiar? You know, by listening to me say this so many times, people will probably say, yeah, as Doug wrote, now I, I didn't write these words. I just say them a lot. But really, no, they had the same words we have. They should have understood that that is true. And is there any exceptions in Psalm 14, 1 through 3? Are there exceptions that people can say, well, yeah, well, that's only for those bad people over there. Not for us. No, it says none, not even one. So it's pretty complete. And then there's Psalm 53, 1 through 3, basically says the same thing. Um, we might as well read it, because we always read it from Romans 3, uh, 10 through 12. But here, for the direct, so, so it says the same, same thing, fool says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt and all their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all my mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So, and then some other scriptures, Job 25, 4. Job 25.4. Let me just read that one. There's, there's more if you really look. Uh, how then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of a woman be pure? This is Job postulating. or it, Well, the book of Job is given us. But notice the common thought of the day is this. Right? And, and truly, that is so. I'm going to skip to Jeremiah as well. Jeremiah 17 and 9. This is a common one for us. Right? We've looked at this one before. So 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Now listen to this. <laughs> beyond cure? Who can understand it? Uh, that, that is rough to say. When, now, obviously, he's talking about the unregenerate heart because um, the Lord can change our heart, right? He can give us a new new mind, a new way of thinking. Right? We can do good once we're saved, but, but this is the state that we are in uh, but prior to salvation. So we're just kind of looking at why did they, since they did not know the righteousness of God. Why didn't they know it? Because it was right there in the Old Testament. So uh, I'd say they could know it. They should have known it. Uh, they're going to be held responsible for not knowing it. 
and uh, the righteousness of God continues to stand. Right? Even if you look at the Israel sanctuary service, the people could not go into the most holy place. There was this whole elaborate system set up so that people could worship God, even though they were uh, not to be ushered into the presence of God, like the, the high priest was able to go into. And we used to always talk about how, you know, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into there with bells on his, um, on his, the bottom of his, his, his garment so that they could hear what was going on. They would listen for the bells. And also there would be a rope tied to his foot, right? So what happens if the priest didn't make it for some reason, did the wrong thing? God would have to take his life. And they were not to run in there and get him because they would die. They would pull him out by the rope. That's the only way that they could uh, retrieve him. They could not go in, into the most holy place at all, that, or, or the holy place. That was forbidden. Or, uh, or, let's say, under pain of death. That was the deal. So that's, they should have known that there was a, a separation between them and God. And, and they were to look forward to the Messiah to come who would rectify all of these things. The Mosaic Law, and especially the Old Testament part where the ceremonial law spoke of Christ's coming and, and all that he would do, the Lamb, like John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a metaphor for Israel. And they did not, they would not recognize that. Point E, we're moving forward. Why couldn't they understand this? Now, one thing to note, uh, this is point E, consult God's instructions and the testimony of warning. Now, this is important to note. This is Isaiah saying, you should consult God for who is right and who is wrong if there's a warning. Now look at this. If anyone does not speak according to his word, they have no light of dawn. That's Isaiah 8, 19 and 20. Well, let's just read. Let me just take, take that to Isaiah because I don't think we read 19. I think I remember I wrote Isaiah 8, 20 down, but 19 I wanted to read too. Okay, so Isaiah 8. And just to note as we're turning pages none of us are because we're we're all electronic here but 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 this verse was my mother's favorite verse this is a she's gone on now to be with the lord but um this was her favorite her most favorite verse in the bible she told me and here it is is isaiah eight twenty. but i'm going to read 19 first when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and, his, and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Or, as the King James would say, there is no light in them. That they don't talk according, and I love this verse myself because we are those who respect God's word. If God says it, we tremble at his word. 
God says this is the word that was preserved from ages past of antiquity. And now we have this word today in our hands. This is the most precious thing we have on this earth. And not counting God the Holy Spirit and what God has done through the work of making us temples and God the Father, His Son, and the Spirit indwell us. Not counting that, but I'm talking about what we have and hold in our hands as the Word of God is the most important. So whatever other people say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. We got the law. God's already going to accept us. No. God's Word spells it out for us. Don't go to mediums. Don't go to hear the Word of God from any other source. Just go to what He has written. And what, what is the verse we use in our, our, our day? It would be John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's where we come from. So I just thought this is appropriate for Israel. That, and it was my mother's favorite verse. But it is appropriate because Israel needed to know that they need to focus on what God said, not what they particularly felt like, I feel good if I'm keeping the law. I feel like I'm accomplishing something. I'm feel, I feel like God respects me because I keep his word. And they were wrong. They were wrong. So, so those are thoughts to consider for Israel because this is where they were. This was their fatal flaw. Point number two. So since they did not know the righteousness of God, point, two, point number two says, and sought to establish their own. Yeah. If we don't know the answers to something, what generally happens is we begin to make it up as we go along. <laughs> and that's what evolution was. Evolution is man did not know the answer, so what did they come up with? Theories of evolution. Uh, they did not know how the origins of life or where we came from or any of that. So what did they do? They made up evolution. They say, oh, here's how it happened. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter if it's not what the Word of God says. It's just what we think. And so this is where Israel, they began to, instead of uh, listening to the Word of God, they came up with their own. They filled in the blanks themselves that they thought they had. So there's some points about that. So the, the first one is the result of ignorance. The, the result of ignorance of the bad news leads to distortion of the good news. So Israel was supposed to think about this. They're supposed to go out and be God's priest nation for the world. They're supposed to go to other nations and tell them about God's so great grace, salvation, which could have been uh, any nation could have accepted and believed, and those they would be benefited. This is this was um, God's vision for Israel, from when He talked about Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, what do you mean by all the nations of the earth will be blessed? He's talking. You know what nations means? It means Gentiles. The word Gentiles is the word ethnos. Nations, right? This is the Greek word. And when we think about the nations, that's exactly what Israel's missionary ground was. The nations, Gentiles, us. 
those who were not do not have the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and have not converted to Israel, to Judaism. It's us, and it speaks of the fact that Israel was supposed to go out and tell us the gospel, and they refused to do it. So, why? Why did? Well, first of all, they were not equipped, as we we're going to talk about. If you're not saved, then you can't see spiritually speaking, what uh, you ought to see. You, you certainly can, are not a witness to something you have not witnessed in terms of grace. So what happens when Israel distorts the bad news? What's the bad news? There's none righteous, none, not even one. You got to have a substitute. That's why you got to bring a blood sacrifice. All those things are what Israel should have known, but they distorted. it. They said, oh, that, that's not important. We can come to God. All we have to do is do our best. They knew that they were not perfect. Not, well, except for Paul. He says, as far as the law was concerned, he was blameless. But when the Spirit got hold of him, he said there was not even one commandment he could keep. So, so he understood. It was blindness, ignorance, arrogance. This is Paul's you know, reason why. Uh, he ended up where he was, with which was, what a wretched man that I am. So it's a result of that, Lisa. If you distort the bad news, how can you understand the good news? Because the good news is given because of the bad news. But if you say that the bad news is invalid, or if you don't acknowledge the bad news, then how can you understand the good news? I, I just... It, it doesn't make logical sense. So what did they do? They distorted the good news. They said, oh, no, you got to be saved by keeping the law. That's the way you get saved. Keep the law. Point B, they did not see the Mosaic law as a minister of death and condemnation. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 3, 7 through 9. Literally, that is what the law is called. The Mosaic law is called the minister of of death. Why minister? Minister is somebody who helps you understand, who helps you. So the, the law helps people understand what? Death? Yes, that they are dead to God, that they need to be reconciled, born again, right? Because if we think about it, Israel didn't think that that was the case. Look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, well, how in the world can I, can I be born again, right? They had no understanding of that. Their minds were fixed on, if you keep the law, you're right with God. That's how you stay right with God. It's keeping the law. When they never came to be reconciled to God from the start. So the law helps them understand. The law helps them understand that they're spiritually dead. And this death is not because of things they did, but it's because of Adam. Because this, in this way, it was Romans 5.12, death spread to all men, for as in Adam, all sinned. Right? So you are dead because of Adam. You're separated from God because of what Adam did. And it also talks about it as a minister of condemnation. It shows you that God's uh, view of you in this state, you're condemned. Literally, you cannot work your way out of condemnation. There's nothing you can do. If some, once it'd be it'd be like if you were sentenced to a crime and the judge banged the gavel down and said condemned, there's nothing you can do. 
you can't you can't do enough good service to reverse that condemnation of the law. It, it, it that is the state you are in. Now, only were only one who can reverse that is the judge, and in in the case of God, he reverses it to justification upon those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He reverses the verdict. You can't do it, but God can. Uh, point C, their fatal flaw was to see their having the law as they were privileged. And salvation, therefore, was beneath them. So if you talk to them about salvation, they thought, oh, what are you talking about? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know I keep the law? Don't you know God's pleased with me and he's not pleased with you Gentiles? So that's Romans 3, 9, where where it says, are we any better? So this is, why are we talking about the Jews so much? Because that's what Paul is dealing with. So Romans 3, 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Now look at this point right here. Do we have any advantage? Are, do, do, do we have any privilege? Is there some credit that God can give us because of all that we have done for him? We have maintained his holiness. We have kept his laws. We have made sure we haven't eaten any pork. Or <laughs> This is, goes way beyond eating pork. They not only uh, tried to dissect the law, thought that they were obeying the law, but James says it best. If you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. So, so what is James really saying? He's saying nobody can really keep the law. And anyway, we've all offended in one point because we receive the imputation of Adam's sin the moment we're born. So yeah, we're already offensive to God at birth. And we didn't even sin yet. We're already offensive. We're already condemned. So Paul says, what can we conclude? Let's, let's draw some conclusions from all that we said. Do we have an advantage? And here's the answer. Is there any privilege? Not at all, for we have already made the charge. Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. We over, and now he's going to quote, as it is written, he's going, to, he's going to tell us why that is the case. Because they had the information. It's not like they didn't have the information. It was there. It was written. It was not like somebody passed along, hey, by the way, it's not righteous, not even one. No, it is written. They could have went back and read it in the Old Testament. So, and then, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 8 through 11. You know, there are so many scriptures about the law that uh, I'm picking and choosing the ones that I want to bring forward because uh, it's just, just too many. We'd be here all day talking about the law. Because it is a major flaw, not only for the Jew, but the Gentiles have taken this law and made a, a law of morality around what the Mosaic law said. They are basically following in the footsteps of the Jew. So they have been moral, they've kept themselves this and didn't do that and won't drink and won't hang around people who do and and won't fornicate, won't commit adultery, all these things that they, they build up themselves and they say, well, we're good people. God, you must respect us for how good we are. We don't curse, we don't this, we don't 
all these things that they have said are, you know, taboo to do, and then they borrow things from the Mosaic Law. They said, well, all of these things, we are privileged. They're following in the footsteps the fatal flaw of Israel, and that's damaging. So the law does have some use. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, we're not saying it, it doesn't have any use for, let's look at it. We know, verse 8, that the law is good if one uses it properly. I don't know why I always say this is the scripture Dave likes. <laughs> I'm sorry for saying that, Dave, but I just remember that from a long time ago. <laughs> Forgive me. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. This is not saying Dave is any of these things. It's just that Dave used to always quote this scripture, just like I was always quoting the Romans 3. So anyway... We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, get this, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So so how do you so all of those sins that are mentioned, it's saying here the law is good. It can show us that we do not qualify. Just like we saw in Second Corinthians you know, three, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9, talks about the law as a minister of death. It shows those people that they're dead. It's the minister of condemnation. It shows those people that they are not acceptable to God. And this is, and these are all outworking or, or things from the sin nature that are going on inside these people, that they have made these decisions and it is, these are bad decisions, but they show the conduct of those who are uh, unbelievers. And there's a clear distinction. The law does make them conscious of sin. Uh, there's other verses that deal with the same thought. We're going we're gonna to cover that in a minute. So, uh, point D, before we are qualified to be ministers of reconciliation... We must first be reconciled. So that, there it is. That's why it says here uh, in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We do not, it's not made for, for the righteous. Why? Because once we believe in Christ, we have the righteousness of God. The law doesn't, can't tell us anything. Right? The law looks at me. What can the law say? The law can only say righteous. Well, what a person would say, wait, wait a minute, you got sins, Doug. How, you can't say that. How can you say you're righteous when you got sins? Well, oh, you know what? That is true. I'm not perfect. Uh, I got sins. But the problem in that statement that people are accusing me of is just, they don't recognize that sin is not the issue. It is about Christ. Christ paid the penalty. I have received the righteousness of God. I have been imputed to my account. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my sins, which were already judged in Christ. He sees the righteousness of God. Well, when he looks at people who have not believed in Christ, 
then he does not see the righteousness of God. He sees what he did with Adam, which is in, in Adam all die. And so in Adam, death, they are separated from him. And they are unrighteous and condemned, not because of these behaviors, but because of what Adam did. They are condemned. So that cannot change for those people. Um, and the only thing, if we're going to tell people about grace, we have to have accepted grace ourselves. And that's the point is made there in that, in that particular point D. Then point E, the law cannot save. So even if the law points it out, right? This is what we read in Romans 3.19. By the law, we are conscience, conscious of sin. We are. We are able to, to it brings the sin to our conscience. Right? Some, some people talk about the subconscious. The subconscious, they say, oh, well, when you dream, those things that are in your subconscious come up and sometimes they, they then you know, present themselves to your conscious dream state. But really, I don't know about all that, but I do know um, that the law, if you get to the law and, it, and you can allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the word, then you will realize in your consciousness, maybe you were pushed to the side. Maybe you said, yeah, I'm a sinner, but that's not important to God as much as me doing the will of God. If I do the will of God, I can counter whatever sins I've done. God will then respect me. He will erase my sins because I'm doing the will of God. He respects me for that. No, the answer is no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. So, but that's where it says here, but God can help us see the need of salvation. So the law is good for that. So in Romans 5, I just want to read this verse. We don't want to leave here without reading it. Romans 5, uh, 20, where it says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. This is a very curious verse. So did God want the trespass to increase? Is that why he brought in the law? What's the trespass? Sin? He says, uh, listen. I just, God is saying, yes, you got to know the bad news. What's the bad news? Well, Adam's sinned and, well, you can read it in verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass, one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Well, whose trespass was that? Adam's, right? So one trespass, everybody's condemned. Well, how does everybody get to know that? Right. They, they may not realize that they are under condemnation. So verse 20, what God did, and this was many years later. People were getting saved already. Right? But the law came in and so that the trespass might increase. So God wanted people to realize that his standard was so much higher than their standards. And it was about righteousness. So, so enough. Sure enough, trespass came. God, the law came in, so that the trespass would increase. So it's like a cesspool. This is a terrible analogy. If you don't know what a cesspool is, some people don't. But uh, the last thing you want to do with a cesspool is uncover it, 
get a nice long stick and just stir it up. Just stir it up. Put that long stick in there and just keep stirring, stir it. What's going to happen? Well, if you thought it stunk then, it's going to be really putrid now because of what you have done. So the law didn't make more sin. The sin was already there. The law just stirred it up to the point where it is very evident that it stinks. Right? Very evident. No question about it. So that's what God did. He uses the law. That's why we read in that verse in Timothy that it's not for the righteous, but it does still have that use in the unbeliever in this world so that they know the truth about what happened in Adam and why God does not see them as righteous. Point number three, we're going to cover these points quickly and then we're going to close. So, so the, the, they went to establish their own, right? They, they, they're the fatal flaw. They refused to listen to what God's way was. So they went, wanted to do it their own way. So they did not submit to God's righteousness. What do we mean they did not submit, right? They, submitting requires humility toward God, as we saw in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, right? This is the verse. This is the humility verse, and we used to read this quite a lot because humility is very important. Uh, we should read. Do not, Philippians 3, 2. Hold on. 2, 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, now look at this, value others above yourselves. Can you do that? Can you value others above yourself? Right? I know some people say, well, I treat everybody the way they treat me. If you're mean toward me, I'll be mean towards you. If you respect me, I'll respect you. People talk about that. But look at this verse. This verse is not saying that. It's saying value others above yourselves. How do you do that? And that is explained in the very next verse. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So, so there it is. It's through. That's humility. That's how you have humility. How do you, you look at what's important to them? Right? And once you look at what's important to them, you can understand how to help them, how to minister to them. It's not just about you, but he's saying true humility is, is to look away from self to others. So when you have humility towards God, you look away from yourself to what is important to God. What does God want? What does God need of us? And then he's given the example of Jesus. Right? who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature. He did what, he became obedient to, unto death, even death on the cross. That's humility. What does God the Father want, Jesus said? I want to do exactly as the Father has commanded me. That's humility. It's important. Right? When we, th we talk about, he, he's saying they've refused to submit to God's righteousness. Well, it, it was a matter of humility. They had to look away from themselves. The law focuses on them. So what are they worried about? Oh, we've got to watch it. We don't sin. We got... No, God is saying, look away from yourself because you're dead. 
and look to Christ. That's humility. It takes humility to be saved. You have to submit to God's righteousness. The only way to be righteousness, to, the only way to be righteous is through the person of Christ. And you can't say it's through your good deeds, your good works, your, obe your obedience, your morality, looking at others and saying you're better than them, and that's why God respects you. None of that is important to God. It is, um, the matter is that you have sub to submit to his righteousness. It is through his way of righteousness, and that is through the Son, to all who believe in Christ. Point B, I gave you what submit was. Hupotasso, right? It's a, it's a word we've learned years ago. It means to be under obedience, right? To be put under subjection, and to subdue, uh, to subject to, and subjection to, submit oneself unto. Right? And these all come from, this is strong, uh, the, the, you know, the Greek definition there. Point C, humility is the ground for faith. If you, if you have humility, you can see what God wants of you, and then you can put your trust in him. Right? This is God says, if you believe in Christ, you can have eternal life. Well, I believe. So then what does that mean? Uh, you will have eternal life. And we know that without faith, right? we know the rest of it, it is impossible to please God. So if you don't know what God wants through humility and submission to God in that manner, you're not going to know that faith pleases him. You're not going to know what his, that righteousness is, is, his righteousness is important for reconciliation. So Hebrews tells us without faith, you cannot, you cannot please God. That's the last thing Israel had was faith. They did not have faith. Point D, God's righteousness is free. Anybody can have it. In Romans 3.22, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Anybody. How does that, you know, when people feel like they're working hard, like they're really doing something, and then you tell them, well, you, anybody can have that. That's free. It's like working for breathing air. You know, I'm breathing, I'm working hard. But air is free. Everybody can have air. It's, it doesn't cost. But people are offended, highly offended, when you tell them that God all that's required is, is salvation by faith because they've been working hard for salvation. I mean, they've been running in the wrong direction. And when you tell them that salvation is free, it's by grace, that you don't have to run, you never did have to run in all those directions, they get offended. It's a sh it, in fact, they're ashamed of their behavior. So instead of them... Uh, saying, okay, I submit. They double down and they say, no, I'm going to run harder. I know I'm right because all that I built up with God, I, I can't just turn my back now and go a different direction. I've been, I've been going down this road. I've got to continue. So God's righteousness is free. Anybody, even Gentiles who never even had the law could be saved. That was a slap in the face to Jews. Point E, the law was the centerpiece of their privilege. They knew, they felt like if we just worship the law, they don't need to worry about Christ. We just got to worship the law. We know that this is what God wants of us. This is what they thought. And it was the very center of their worship. 
For those thinking they are justified by their by the works of the law, it is an affront. When you read Romans 3, 20 and 21, where Paul just comes right out and says it, I don't know how it can be any more clearer other than for them to just say, I don't believe Paul. 3.20 says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. But that is what they wanted to be, was declared righteous. And how? By the works of the law. Through the law, we become conscious of sin, just like we read in Romans 5, right, earlier. Yeah, that's that was hard for them to reconcile. So point F, if someone is working for their, for their salvation, they develop an attitude of entitlement, and rightly so. But they will not be paid with the gift of salvation. So you work and you think God owes you, right? And sure enough, Romans 4, 4, and 5 talks about to the man who works, an obligation is created. But that's not grace. That's not faith and grace. That's not how a person is saved by telling God, you owe me salvation. You see what I've been doing. You see how hard I've been working for you. And you you got to say, if anybody, that person over there is not doing your will. So you know, I am doing your will. So what? I definitely am better than that person. No. So God says, anybody can have it. It doesn't depend on your working. So now you see why Israel is an enemy to us because here we are talking about we're saved by grace they got to continue to work being the word saved in their vocabulary is probably a bad word because they're constantly working 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 and never getting the gift of salvation you can never get the gift of salvation by working romans 4 4 and 5, demonstrate that God knows the difference between a gift and a reward. So there's no question about whether that those words all merge. It doesn't matter. No, it matters to God. He understands the difference between a gift and a reward. If anything, we shouldn't be asking if God understands the difference. We should be saying, do we understand the difference between a gift and a reward? We're going to close with this. We'll continue with verse number four next week. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. We're glad that we had this opportunity to focus our attention again on your word. If we understand your salvation from the ground floor up, Father, can only benefit us and help us to orient to this new life that we have. And that is the foundation for spiritual growth. So we thank you for your words. We thank you for the testimony, the consistency, the word that has been preserved for us from antiquity. Thank you so much. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.